Today's reading comes from John 20, 19 to 23. On the evening of that day, the first of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. You may be seated. All right, as you're seated, let me pray. Father, we thank you so much for this passage of Scripture. We thank you so much for the gift of Jesus, for the gift of your Holy Spirit to us. We thank you for the gift of participating in the mission that you are on about in the world, that we get to participate in your kingdom, that you've called us to serve you in this way. And so we just pray today, Lord, that you would, you would light us up in this text, Lord, that you would challenge us through this text, that you would strengthen us and strengthen our resolve for mission in Vancouver through this text. And just ask you, God, that you would pour your spirit out upon us here as we're gathered. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. So... Before we jump into the 32-week series in the Sermon on the Mount, I just wanted to take today and talk a little bit about the why of Christ City. Why are we doing all of this? Why, why are we gathered in this way? Why are we looking at this text? Why do we exist as a church? All of that. In John chapter 20, verses 19 to 23 that you just heard read, we've got this paragraph, really is what it is, a paragraph that shows us how the resurrected Jesus commissioned his disciples for mission. How the resurrected Jesus commissioned his disciples and then us through them to join him in what he is doing in this world. We find them in this locked room. These disciples are meeting for fear of the authorities. They're meeting in this locked room. And, 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 and John tells us in his gospel here in John chapter 20 that it's the evening of the resurrection Sunday. It's the evening of the first Easter Sunday. It's the evening when the women had gone to the tomb in the morning and they had found that the tomb was empty. It's the evening of that day. Everybody's confused. They don't know what is happening. It's a couple of days past Good Friday when Jesus was crucified and died upon the cross. It's a couple of days past his burial where he remained in the tomb on the Sabbath and they all sat, I think, in darkness wondering what was actually going on. And it's the first Sunday and they're still a little bit as, uh, confused as to what's happening. And on that first Easter Sunday, it says they're locked behind the locked doors in this room, and Jesus is among them. Jesus is standing in their midst. They figure, what is going on? Maybe we're a little bit lost. Maybe we're a little bit broken over what's happened through the course of this weekend. And they gather together in this room, and Jesus shows up. He proves himself that he is not only the resurrected Lord, but He's not only the, the, the crucified Lord, but the crucified and risen Lord. He shows up and he says, look at the, look at the scars on my hand. Look at the mark on my side. This is how, and then he says, peace be with you. Shows them the marks on his hands and the mark on his side. And he offers them his peace. He says, peace be with you. He says it twice in this text, and I think it's very important that he says it twice. So we'll look at why I think he says it twice in this text. But I want you to notice that Jesus was recognizable to his disciples by the scars on his body. And he tells them that they are then going to continue his mission. 
that they are going to continue his mission in the world. That he is going to make this group of people fearful and locked up behind closed doors. He is going to turn them into people who head out into the world with a message of hope and reconciliation and the message of peace. His mission is becoming their mission. And through what he shows his disciples in this locked room and his scars on his body, through what he shows them and through the reality that he shows up in their midst, in the center of their little gathering, he is showing us the difference that it makes when we see that God is with us, that Christ is with us, that he is for us, and that he has a purpose for each and every one of us as his church. See, everything changes when Jesus stands at the center of it all. Everything changes when you know that Jesus is in our midst. Verse 19 says, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. He stood among them. If you, if you have read through some of the New Testament you see in, in Revelation chapter 1. John, who wrote the Gospel of John, wrote this revelation that he had. He had this vision, and he's standing there, and he hears a voice, and upon turning around, he sees that Jesus is in the midst of his churches. He's writing a letter to the, what's called the seven churches of Asia. But he sees that in the midst of these seven churches, Jesus stands in their midst. Just as Jesus stood in their midst on the first day, the risen king, Jesus stands at the center of the churches of Asia. Can I just say he's with us? And we need to keep him in the center. We need to recognize that he's with us, that he's for us, that he's got a purpose for us as a people, and that he is at the very center of that whole reality. Everything changes when Jesus stands at the center. And then he says... On the evening of that day, this is the day that they woke up and that he was no longer in the tomb where they expected him to be, that their whole world has been turned upside down, that he was dead but not in the tomb, his body was gone, and they were filled with fear. On that day, Jesus shows up. On the first day of the week, the first day of the rest of the world, the resurrected king showed up among them in their midst, at their center. On the evening of that day, they found Jesus' tomb empty on that day, where they were filled with fear at the prospect of the authorities coming after them next. On that day, Jesus shows up among them. On that day, when they don't know what to do next, when they are not sure how they're supposed to continue to be followers of Jesus when he's not there, on that day, he shows up among them. On the day that they locked the room and were filled with fear, he shows up and he calms their anxieties about what is next. And he stands among them and he says, peace be with you. Look at verse 19 again. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad that they saw the Lord when they saw the Lord. So we've got Jesus Christ crucified, dead, and now risen in the center of their fear-filled gathering. And they recognize him by his scars. Don't miss it. The peace he offers them is connected to the scars on his body. Peace or shalom. It's this weighty word we'll come back to in a bit. But the only way that true peace can come, the only way that Jesus can speak peace to his people 
is in connection with what he said earlier when he was being crucified. In fact, the last words that he spoke upon the cross, John chapter 19, verse 30. One chapter earlier, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. I want us to see that it is finished is connected with peace be with you. I want us to see that the it is finished of the crucified Jesus is connected to the peace be with you of the resurrected Jesus. Jesus' peace comes to us through his death on the cross. Jesus' peace comes to us through his apparent defeat in death. See, the victory of Jesus is tied and actually built upon apparent defeat. The kingdom of God is like that. Life comes through death. In the kingdom of God, the least or the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. In the kingdom of God, it's the proud who are humbled, and it's the humble who are exalted. In the kingdom of God, what is right side up looks upside down, and what's upside down looks right side up. And through apparent defeat, Jesus actually shows that he has victory. It is finished, is connected to peace be with you. It says in Colossians chapter 1, for in him, verse 19, all the fullness of God. In him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. See, his scars identify him as their Lord who made peace by the blood of his cross. Verse 20 says, when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. It says they were glad when they saw the Lord. No doubt. Things have not gone well this weekend. And here he is. Glad seems like the most restrained, subdued, boring way you could possibly translate this story into the English version of our Bible, from the Greek to the English. It seems like the most subdued way. Like this morning when I woke up and I got, I was glad that there were socks in my drawer, right? I was glad. I was glad. If I'm the disciples, I'm not, oh, they were glad. I put my socks on. I was glad. Hey, Jesus is here. I'm glad. No, no, they were ecstatic. They were filled with joy. There was exceeding joy among the disciples. He shows them his crucified hands, his wounded side. He shows them that as a way or a reason for the peace that he is speaking to them. Peace be with you. Look what I accomplished. And here I am with you. And they were glad. There's a scholar, historian, his name was Yaroslav Pelikan. He told his friend shortly before he died, he was... Knowing that he was going to die, he said, if the resurrection of Jesus actually happened, then nothing else really matters. If the resurrection of Jesus did not actually happen, then nothing else really matters. If the resurrection of Jesus actually happened, then nothing else really matters. It doesn't mean that we're sort of, you know, there's no meaning in life. It just means that, that without that, I don't know what you take a hold of. If it didn't actually happen, nothing else matters. I was at a funeral yesterday here. The resurrection of Jesus did not happen. Nothing really matters. Like when I'm on my deathbed, and even now as I look forward to that day, I will not be sustained by the idea of Jesus. Jesus is not an idea. It's person. Jesus is present with us by his spirit. 
He stood among his disciples in that locked room. He's here among us today, risen, triumphant, ruling and reigning as the Lord of the cosmos. It's not an idea. He's the one who disarmed Satan, sin, death, hell, and the grave. Jesus is not an idea. He is the essence of embodied truth, and he is risen. The Father did not send an idea to help humanity along. He sent his Son in flesh, embodied as we are embodied. The Father did not send an abstract principle that would help us to get our thinking correct. He sent flesh and blood who lived among us, who was subject to all the temptations that we are subject to, yet was without sin. Jesus is not an idea. Jesus lived a perfect life. He died an atoning death that we might be reconciled to God through him by putting our trust and our faith in what he accomplished on our behalf. An idea cannot accomplish that. I'm big on ideas, don't get me wrong. I'm an idea guy. Jesus is not an idea. An idea will not sustain you in the darkest valleys of your life, but the presence of Jesus will. An idea will not comfort you on your deathbed, but Jesus will. These disciples had locked themselves away in a room because they were afraid. And here he stands in their midst, and their encounter with him changes the course of their life. Christ City, an encounter with Jesus will change the course of your life. Verse 20, when he had said this, he showed him his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. They were absolutely ecstatic when they saw the Lord. They were filled with joy. They had just encountered the crucified and risen Jesus, and then he told them what they were to do about that. Verse 21, Jesus said to them, again, Peace be with you. That's the second time. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. This is the great commission in the Gospel of John. He said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Look back at the second part of verse 19. When Jesus came and stood among them, he said, peace be with you. That's the first time he said that. When he said this, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them, again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Jesus hasn't said a whole bunch to them in the room. Why is he saying peace be with you two separate times very, very quickly within the span of four mere verses? Well, I think the first time he said peace be with you, he is offering his blood-bought peace to them personally, and they rejoiced. I think the second time he says, peace be with you, he's telling them their mission in life is to take that peace, the peace that they have received, and to go out into the world with that message on their lips that the world may hear and see and know the love of God. I think that peace is tied to the commission he gives them to go. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. The first expression of his peace was for them, the second expression of his peace was for the world who would hear through their witness. Missionary and bishop and scholar and professor Leslie Newbegin, one of my favorite authors, said the gift of peace was not for them alone, 
On the contrary, he has chosen and appointed them to be the bearers of shalom, that peace, into the life of the world. Forty times in this gospel, Jesus is described as being the one sent by the Father. Now he sends them to continue and complete his mission. As the Father sent me, even so, I am sending you. So notice something in this. It says the Father sent the Son. It means that he's been sent in the past, that there's a past action that the Father at a time in history, it says in Galatians 4.4, that at the opportune time, at the right time, the fullness of time, the Father sent the Son. That happened historically. It's a past date, but it has an ongoing impact in our lives, a very significant ongoing impact to the tune of billions of people who have come to believe this. The Father sent the Son, and Jesus says, now I am sending you. There's a present ongoing reality to that word, that he's sending. Even as he sent those disciples, he said, Father sent me, so I'm sending you. Can you hear this, Christ City? Even as the Father sent Jesus, Jesus is sending you. It's a continuity in his mission. There's something going on. I want you to notice that it was not like Jesus came and he began his mission and then he ended his mission and stopped and then he talked to the church and he said, okay, and now let me give you some aims and goals to work toward. Let's start a new mission. That's not what actually happened. There's continuity. We are the ones who continue on the message of Jesus. The Father sent the Son and the Son sends the church. It's continuity with the one grand story of God, the one grand story of the fact that we filled with the Spirit, are continuing the mission of Jesus here in the city that we live. This is what we're called to. This is why we exist. This is who we are. This is what we're on about. Father sent the Son, and the Son sends us. See, we have been and are being sent. And we have the most profoundly life-changing news that has ever been told. We have the profound privilege of telling people who have never encountered the God of the universe who they somehow know exists, that they can have peace with God. You can say, he came to me and I received his peace. But then he, he gave me his peace to carry onward. As the Father sent me, so I send you. In the New Testament, we are the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. He is present with us, but by extension of that, we, we are to be present in the world. We are, and I, I think I can say this without you know, stepping into some sort of Trinitarian heresy, which is always a little scary for me. We are the extension, in, in this sense, of the incarnation of Christ into our neighborhoods, our homes, our businesses, our schools. We are bearers of the message of peace that Christ has given us. We then take that where we go. We take that to the lost and broken world around us. Do you, do you, I mean, you just have to stop and think once in a while because you get Christianified or something like that where you just get so used to this, sitting inside the four walls of this room, very comfortable. Don't forget the lostness of the lost. I remember being on the other side of this wall. It's terrifying. It's confusing. It's difficult. It's broken. It has the appearance of joy, but the absence of the foundation of it. It might look good, it might look easy, but it's not. Don't forget the lostness of the lost because we've been found. 
We are salt and light here in this world. We're going to see this in the Sermon on the Mount, I don't know, probably in 10 or 12 weeks. Matthew 5 says you. Now, just notice, that's the plural you. If you've been around Christ City for a while, you know that I argue for a translation that says y'all. Okay? I think it's more helpful because we read the Bible so individualistically that, that we should take a, a page out of our southern friend's book and we should say y'all. So this is what I think it should say. It should say y'all are the light of the world. Not you individually, even though you are part of the all. You corporately. You, as a group, as a people. Jesus' people in the world, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all people in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is kingdom living in the kingdom of God. And walk outside and you see, and you can remind yourself of this when you're walking down the street. I'm walking down the street in our neighborhood and I look up, where's the light post? It's not here, covered by something. It's up. Shining light that others may see. That's our job. It's our privilege. It's our honor. We've been entrusted with the responsibility of bearing the good news of the kingdom. Okay, I'm getting excited. I need to slow down. How do we do this? How? That sounds like a lot, right? To you? That sounds like a lot to me. How do we live lives that give glory to our Father in heaven? Verse 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. The front row just got that. (laughs) And he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. This is the Trinitarian glory of God on full display. The Father sends the Son, and the Son sends the church, empowered by the Holy Spirit to make the fame and deeds of God known in our day. We participate in the Trinitarian glory. The Father and the Son and the Spirit. The mission of Jesus was defined by the Father. The Father sent the Son. The mission of the sent one is defined by the one who did the sending. The Father sent the Son. But in that sense then, our mission as the people who have been sent is defined by the one who does the sending. Jesus defines the mission that he has called us to. The Father sent the Son, the Son sends the church empowered by the Spirit to make the fame and deeds of God known in our day. And if the message of the Son who was sent is defined by the Father who did the sending, then the mission and message of the church is defined by Jesus, and the good news is, empowered by the Holy Spirit, that we might be effective in carrying it out. So our mission is a participation in God. We are participating in what he is doing in this world as we carry the good news of peace. Our work is defined by our Lord and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so we've got this little episode of disciples locked up in this room, and Jesus appears with them, among them, in the center of them. It's a picture uh, of what would happen when he says, receive the Holy Spirit. It's a picture of what would happen about 50 days later on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit falls upon the church. The church is filled with the Spirit of God, empowered to do this. This fear-filled little group of people are 
just like us, and they change the world. Receiving the Holy Spirit moved them from fear-filled to faith-filled, and it does the same for us. When we recognize that we are participating in what God is doing in the world, we're not inventing something here. We're not alone in what we're doing. We are carrying on the mission and message that Jesus has given us as we participate in what God is doing in the world. Um, a pastor friend of mine told me the definition of evangelism that he uses. He says it's, it's having and joining a conversation that the Holy Spirit is already having with a person. Like, we're not on our own in this. We're just coming alongside and, and being bearers and, and witnesses to the truth of what this person is already wrestling with. That's what we're called to do. Just to, Hi, I have a message of peace with the God of the universe, and I can tell you how you can be reconciled to him in relationship. That sounds great. Like, I, we tend to keep that to ourselves probably more than we should, because we've been slapped across the face a few times by people who don't want to hear it. But let's let maybe God set the agenda, not the people who have rejected him. He's called us to this. We get to participate in this. It's a divine privilege that's been bestowed on us. I, I, receive the spirit, Christ city. Like, receive the spirit. That's what he said. As the Father sent me, so I send you. Receive the spirit. I want to pray. Come Holy Spirit. Fill us afresh and fill us with zeal and passion for your kingdom. Fill us with the winsome words that we need to bear witness to the truth of the gospel in this lost city. This broken, lost, and chaotic city that needs you. I just pray, God, that you would do something in us. Hear our prayer, O oh Lord. We, like these disciples, are locked up in this room and we're kind of afraid and we confess that to you. We're in this room where it's comfortable and safe. I just pray, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to us in your midst. In our midst, God, that we would know you're with us. And that you would fill us with your spirit afresh and anew. That as we leave here, God, that we can see world-changing effects like these disciples saw. Oh, Lord, help us to walk in the power of your spirit, I pray. I don't know a way to jump back into preaching when you just pray. I guess you just do it. <laughs> There's 10 fear-filled disciples in this room. That's what we think. There's 10 of them. Turns into about 120 before the day of Pentecost. We see in the book of Acts. You can read Acts 1, 2, 3, 4. You can see the trajectory of how the church begins to grow as people recognize who God is and the peace that he offers in Christ. About 10 people here. grows to about 120 before Pentecost. Acts 4 says that... Uh, by that point in the history of the church, the very young church of Jesus, at the history at that point, about 5,000 people believed. Uh, church historians and the soci sociologists like Rodney Stark and others who've done work on this say that by the end of the first century, like year 100, there were about 25,000 people who confessed Christ as Lord. And that 200 years later, around the year 300, that there were between 5 and 7.5 million people who said that Jesus was Lord. And here we are on the west coast of North America, as far from where they were as you can get. And, and here we are believing in Jesus. Have you looked at the life of the disciples who were fearfully locked up in that room? Like, they're terrible. They're not the people you pick if you want to win a game. You know, like when you do the schoolyard pick and you're like, I'll take him and I'll take her. And they're like the last kids picked. Like, they don't appear to be really magnificent 
in themselves. Isn't that good news for us who are not magnificent in and of ourselves? <laughs> Jesus said, receive the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit fell on them, it, 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 he, the Holy Spirit changed them. And I don't know how it works, and I don't know what happened, but I know that you don't want to meet me before I became a Christian. You don't want to see how underwhelming I was before the Spirit filled me and how inadequate I feel today. They're just normal people that God breathed on, and he did something magnificent that has changed the course of the history of our whole world. See, our inadequacies are met with the gift of the Holy Spirit to become who we really are. Our inadequacies are met with the gift of the Holy Spirit to become who we really are. Ross Hastings is a professor at Regent College. He wrote a book on this text and on the mission of God. It's very good. He said, he's speaking of the church. He says, the utter impossibility of fulfilling its mission, the mission of the church, is clear. Apart from the presence of the once crucified and now risen Jesus, apart from the power of Trinitarian participation, apart from life in the Spirit. He's saying it's completely impossible apart from that. But positively stated, this text is an image of what emerges when untrained, dispirited men and women feeling desperately inadequate begin to live in the shalom, the peace of the triune God, and share it out with humanity and creation. So I would say, surely if these disciples who are locked up and filled with fear and they're stuck inside the four walls of the room that they found themselves in, if they can be transformed into mighty men and women of God of mission, so can we. So can we. Locked inside the four walls of this room, we may feel comfortable and strong, but we are actually weak and ineffective. This is the easiest place in the city to be a Christian. This is the easiest job in the city for a Christian to have, right here. But there's this reality that our inadequacy is met with God's provision. And do you want to live on the edge where God meets you in your weakness and does amazing things through you? Receive the Holy Spirit. If we allow Christ to break into our midst and we recognize that he's the center of all things and we understand his mission and his message and we receive his spirit, we can be transformed as they were and we go out into all the world, and we can come alongside God and what he's already doing and participate in his mission. So let me encourage you. Christ City, your self-underestimation does not honor Jesus or the mission he's called you to. Your self-underestimation does not honor Jesus or the mission he's called you to. And we're very Canadian about this, most of us. We're very understated, aw, aw shucks. It doesn't honor God, though, for us to underestimate ourselves. It's, it's like Bianca wins the U.S. Open. What, what? Right? I love it when we beat the Americans at anything. I got to tell you. It feels so good. It feels so good. Oh, the American brothers and sisters here, welcome. We won. Um, we won the NBA championship, too, actually. I just want to throw that out there. If we could get the Stanley Cup back, that'd be great. It's not what I was talking about. We're so Canadian. Did you see how Bianca received the trophy? They're interviewing. They're like, how'd it go? And she's just like, I disappointed all the fans here. I'm really sorry. Because they all wanted Serena Williams to win. That's the Canadian way of receiving a trophy. Okay? Oh, I'm sorry. But l- listen, you don't honor God by underestimating your value in the kingdom. So, so stop being so Canadian about it and be kingdom about it. 
We, we, we like to just downplay everything we do. Well, I'm not that important. <laughs> Sorry, I won. <laughs> Which I've never said in my life. I'd like to... I have the kingdom reality of winning. You know, it's just big, bold. I'm very important. <laughs> Some of us maybe need to tone it down a little bit. Others of you, 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 don't, you, you don't honor God by underestimating your value in the kingdom. It might be true of, of, of many of us that we do this. Receive the Spirit. As the Father sent Jesus, so Jesus sends us. Verse 21, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. That is what I call, in my Bible reading, a bump verse. It is when you come up upon it, it's like a speed bump. You go bump and keep going. That verse doesn't make a lot of sense. Like that's a difficult verse to crack, I think. When I read this in my devotions, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. When I read things like that in my devotions, I think to myself, that's probably really important, and I don't have time to figure out what it means right now. So I spent some time trying to figure out what it means for us. The question I think we would see when we look at this, is it not the question that is it, it's only God who forgives sin, Right? So Jesus says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. Well, that, that doesn't seem like in our job description. So what does he mean? There must be something else here. We've got to look at the context of the passage of Scripture. We've got to look, what is he talking about here? Jesus sent by the Father. Jesus sending the church. When we share the gospel of the crucified and risen Savior who is present with us to offer us peace, when we share that gospel, we are giving the world a chance to receive that, that awe-inducing reality that we can be forgiven our sins and be reconciled to God in relationship. We are literally opening the door to salvation. We are opening the door for those to be forgiven. But when we withhold this message, when we are withholding the message of peace and hope that we have, we are withholding the opportunity for them to find forgiveness, and the door to salvation stays closed. I believe this is what we've been entrusted with. So double back with me. Just think about this. The Father sends the Son. The Son sends the church in the power of the Holy Spirit. It was the Father who gave the Son authority to forgive sin. This is all through the Gospels, and it was a big deal when Jesus was like, I forgive you. They wanted to kill him because he was not allowed to forgive sin. Only God could forgive sin. That's how one of the reasons that we know that Jesus was God and that he believed he was God and understood who he was. He had been given the authority to do so. And I believe that he's giving the authority to the church. As the Father sent me, so I send you. This is our participation in God's gift to the world. He gives this responsibility to his disciples. Uh, Frederick Dale Bruner said, the special mission of the church is to give Jesus to others in such a way that they may believe that he is really risen and Lord and with that simple trust that they can receive and with and in Jesus the free forgiveness of sins, the free gift of the Holy Spirit, and the free privilege of passing Jesus and his forgiveness on to others. So think of it like this. It's actually the result of sharing the gospel. When you share the gospel with somebody, they either believe, come to repentance, and put their faith and trust in Jesus, or they reject it and they stand in their sins. When we share the gospel, people can accept and be forgiven or reject, and that forgiveness is withheld. 
This is not a new idea in the Gospel of John. See, the Gospel demands a response. John chapter 3, verse 16. You might have heard this one before. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So the Father sent the Son so that the world may know who he is, his great love, and that they may be saved. The Son sends the church so that the world may know his love and be forgiven their sin and be saved. In John chapter 3, we see it again. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, and uh, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. See, you and I don't convert anyone, but we do bear witness to the wonderful, amazing truth that we can be forgiven our sins in Christ. And when we share forth that message, we are giving people the opportunity to do the same. The Father sends the Son, and the Son sends the church, who are filled with the Spirit, to offer this message of hope and forgiveness to all who will come to Him. It's the same thing being retold in John 20. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. How beautiful is the commission of Jesus that we get to participate in the very life of God for this world. These are the very words of forgiveness that God offers our world in Christ. We have been entrusted with the words of life. So let me close by saying everything changes when we see that Jesus is at the center. When Jesus showed up in their midst, it changed them from faith, uh, fear-filled to faith-filled. It, it reoriented their lives around Christ as the center. Everything changes when we receive God's peace in our lives, but not only for us, but when we receive his peace as the message on our lips to carry to the world around us. We've been given an honor to share that to this chaotic and dying world, and our, my hope is that we just continue to grow in this grace. Everything changes when we see our sending into all of life as an opportunity to participate in what God is doing. We're not starting something new. We're just joining him in what he's already doing. As the Father sent the Son, so we are sent. We are here that our city might hear this good news of peace. It's an honor. It's why we exist as a church. Would you stand as we respond? Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.